Hi, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, who is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Christina Bicchieri. Christina is the SJP Harvey Professor of Social Thought and Comparative Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program at Penn. Her new book is titled Norms in the Wild, How to Diagnose, Measure, and Change Social Norms. The book is published by Oxford University Press. Now, as the title and subtitle indicate, the book is aimed at helping those who seek to affect change in collective behavior design more effective interventions. Now, given the complexity of collective behavior, the task of designing interventions is delicate. One needs an adequately nuanced theory of norms in order to think clearly about how norms may be changed. So there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin by greeting our guest. Hello, Christina. Hello. Happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Why don't you start us off, uh, as we normally do in these uh, conversations, by telling us a little bit about yourself. All right. I grew up in Milano, Italy, and uh, I got interested in philosophy very early. Um, in Italy, in schools, especially, uh, you know, in the classics, let's say, you study philosophy, and in particular, typically, history of philosophy. And um, I remember I had an epiphany reading Kant. And then and there, I decided I would do philosophy. I would study philosophy. <laughs> and so it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, then I went... Uh, into a very different direction, into philosophy of science and social science. But it was Kant that really piqued my interest in philosophy. Uh, Then I studied, of course, uh, uh, philosophy in Italy, in Milano, and I got very interested in logic and philosophy of science. So there was a sharp division then between continental philosophy and, uh, let's say, analytical philosophy. And very few people were doing analytical philosophy, but I got very interested in it. Uh, but in particular, I got very, very interested in logic and philosophy of science. And so I specialized in that already, uh, you know, in my university years. Then I went to Cambridge to do a PhD in philosophy of science, not in philosophy, because in Cambridge then, history and philosophy of science was completely separate from the philosophy department. We were doing really different things. And uh, finally, I got, um, by real chance, because I didn't have any particular interest in uh, going to the States, I confess. (laughs) (laughs) I got a fellowship at Harvard. I was nominated for a fellowship at Harvard. So I say, well, why not? And so I spent two years at Harvard. And it was very interesting because um, uh, I was under the tutelage, so to speak, of John Rawls. And so I learned a lot about political philosophy, which was not that that good at that point in Cambridge, Uh, England. So in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I learned a lot about political philosophy. I was very interested. But at the same time, I 
took, uh, uh, you know, several courses and um, did some research in economics. So I was sort of uh, divided, <laughs> if you will, between these two fields. But I didn't want to stay in America. And so I went back to Italy. And at that point, Italy uh, was in turmoil. Basically, the government uh, uh, didn't uh, allow university uh, to uh, uh, give out professorships, even junior professorships. And in Italy, everything is uh, state dependent. So it's not that the university can hire you as a permanent professor if you don't pass a national state competition, basically. And so, um, you know, I went and taught a little bit in Torino, but there were no state competitions, so on and so forth. And so I got an offer to go back uh, uh, to Barnard College, Columbia University. Uh, and so by pure chance, because I wanted to stay in Italy, <laughs> my career started in the U.S. And then the rest is well known. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Um one wonders how many uh, how many of us uh, got into philosophy via Kant. Um, <laughs> it seems like it's probably a pretty large number. Um, so um, why don't we turn then uh, to talking about the book. Um, now, uh, the, the title, Norms in the Wild, is uh, uh, to be taken seriously. Uh, this is a book that emerged out of some um, work you've been doing. Uh, uh, with uh, field practitioners um, uh, who work with um, UNICEF programs and uh, design interventions. Uh, yeah. um, can you tell us a little bit about the backstory? Yes. Uh, in 2008, uh, somebody from UNICEF New York, where there is a most important uh, um, you know, branch of UNICEF, had read my 2006 book, uh, The Grammar of Society. And uh, they were very interested in talking to me because they thought, mm, you know, a normal perspective, this kind of, <clears throat> sorry, of social perspective would be interesting uh, to adopt for UNICEF. And let's listen what you have to say to us. And so I went to New York um, I was already in Philadelphia. I went to New York and uh, gave a three-hour lecture, basically, on social norm and uh, the research I do. And uh, they were very, very interested and so asked me to do some consulting for them, um, which I did. Consulting meant, basically, uh, you know, they had uh, this uh, big meeting in Rio de Janeiro in which, uh, um, you know, we had to discuss uh, uh, violence against children and in particular sexual violence against children and how and if uh, social norm and what sort of social norm played a role in that. And so I studied the literature and uh, I gave my talk and there was a lot of enthusiasm. This was not just UNICEF, but lots of different other NGOs. And uh, then UNICEF, uh, you know, sort of uh, encouraged by this uh, result, asked me to do a training uh, for them uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So every year for several years, I run this uh, training at the beginning 
with a colleague from San Diego and then in the end just myself and it was a training that lasted two weeks and it trained people on the nature of social norms, how to measure them, how to diagnose whether something is a norm or not and how to change them. Now a uh, lot of people, of course, every training was like a hundred of people uh, coming from all over the world, and they got really, really interested in uh, having me in their countries, you know, to do training, further training, uh, uh, you know, to uh, UNICEF people there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I started doing uh, some limited training uh, uh, overseas, and uh, at that point, uh, they were asking me also for some consulting job. And in particular, the most important part of the consulting job was to measure, okay? Measurement means to decide through specific measures what sort of collective behavior, what sort of collective practices we are facing, okay? And I, since that, that time in 2008, I have developed, uh, you know, lots of very specific measures and I have done tons of consulting. In particular, now I'm doing uh, a huge research project for the Gates Foundation on sanitation in India. So I'm going back and forth from India. And again, uh, what uh, is of interest for the Gates Foundation, I'm still working for UNICEF, of course, and also other you know, uh, smaller, if you will, groups and NGOs, uh, is, again, uh, are there social norms, uh, you know, in that particular situation that can prevent behavioral change or can support behavioral change? And this is basically all the work I do, and I give advice on behavioral change. But my advice is very different from, for example, a typical nudge advice, because a nudge advice is very individualized. You know, how I convince uh, people to take their medicine, for example, or to stop smoking. And in my case, uh, the kind of advice I give is uh, how basically to convince people collectively to change behavior, because typically these behaviors are interdependent. Well, wonderful. Why don't um, and the, the contrast with the nudge um, literature is uh, is very interesting. I should think important, um, uh, which we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to. Um, so let's begin then with um, uh, part of what you were just discussing, discussing, or one of the um, uh, one of the features of what you were just discussing. So the book subtitle is "How to Diagnose, Measure, and Change Social Norms." Um, so why don't we begin with the diagnosing part? Um, you, uh, your work, including your earlier work, including the Grammar of Society book, um, uh, de- presents and defends a pretty careful, uh, precise taxonomy of different kinds of collective behaviors. Yeah. You distinguish between habits and customs and conventions, and then descriptive norms and social norms. Um, can you walk us through some of the, the crucial distinctions here, uh, so that we know, uh, for example, um, what, what, on your view, um, a social norm is and how it's distinguished from other kinds of um, collective behavioral patterns? Um, yes. Um, in the um, in the new book, uh, um, you know, uh, I I spend a lot of time, especially in the first chapter, uh, 
in distinguishing collective behaviors. And why it is important is not just a, you know, a theoretical interest, but it's very practical because when um, we try to understand how to change these collective behaviors, we need to know what they are. In particular, we need to know what motivates people to behave the way they do. So the, there are three uh, big distinctions. And uh, the first one is between independent and interdependent behaviors. And what does it mean? Interdependent behavior, which are the most interesting, are behaviors that are, at least in part, determined by what people observe other people that, of course, matter to them to do and or what other people that matter to them approve or disapprove of, you know, what other people believe should or should not be done. So these are interdependent behavior. But there are lots of behavior that are independent in the sense that what other people do or what other people think uh, is right or wrong to do does not matter to the decision maker. So this is the first big distinction. And I will come to measures in a moment, but first let's let's start with the taxonomy. Sure. Now, suppose you observe a collective behavior and uh, you want to decide uh, whether it is uh, independent or, uh, you know, interdependent. Well, uh, you know, you can measure people's expectations, okay, what you expect other people to do, what what you think other people think you should do, etc., etc. But the interesting thing is we have to decide whether these expectations motivate choice or not. And I give you an example, and I'm working on that for the Gates Foundation as we speak. Uh, open defecation. Open defecation is a collective behavior very common in the developing world, and especially, uh, you know, serious behavior. A damaging behavior because, uh, you know, it pollutes water, it pollutes land, uh, it creates diseases, it creates stunting in children, and so on and so forth. And so the question is, uh, first question, what motivates people to behave like that? And my answer is typically, uh, you know, uh, the need, the fact that they need to do certain things and they have certain means to satisfy these needs, and the means are shared. Everybody has the same means, everybody has the same need, and therefore, you know, they act in that particular way. They have expectation about other people, you know, they know that other people act like them, but these expectations have no influence on their behavior. So whether other people do something different or not, does not usually influence them. So I call um, this type of behavior custom, collective customs, okay? The interesting thing is, uh, you know, uh, a collective custom can be changed in many different ways. Uh, you can change it by, you know, marketing techniques. Uh, you change people's aspiration levels, you know, say, for example, uh, the idea is, uh, and this is the work I'm doing now, so I talk about that. Sure. You, know, you can try to convince people to use uh, toilets, to, and you can even incentivize, you know, the building on toilets, etc. The problem is that uh, to move from, uh, um, you know, a collective custom to the collective use of toilets, 
uh, you need a crucial change that uh, is related to collective action. So there are certain customs that, uh, you know, can be changed uh, by simple manipulations that can be changed by advertising campaign, but can be changed by uh, marketing campaigns. But other customs like open defecation cannot be changed like that because what is important that people realize is uh, that uh, this activity creates a collective negative externality. And only when people realize that, you know, people feel you know, more inclined not only to build, but also to use toilets, because we have a lot of experience of situations where toilets have been built, but then were never used. So this is a case in which to get out of an independent behavior, you have to create an interdependent behavior. You have to create a social norm. And, uh, uh, you know, I will talk a little bit more about that when we talk about measures and change. But let's move to another collective behavior, there are lots of collective behavior in which expectations matter to choice. Which expectations? Now, I distinguish between two different types of expectation, empirical and normative. Empirical expectations are my expectation of what people that matter to me, that are part, part of what I call my reference network that may vary from situation of situa- to situation, of course, when these people do certain things, I know they do that. I observe them doing that. I expect them to continue doing a certain behavior. And this has an influence on my behavior. So there is interdependence. Okay. Very often, this interdependence is only limited to empirical expectation. i give you an example, imitation. When we want to imitate the successful, okay, we want to imitate certain type of people, uh, we want to imitate what these people do, uh, empirical expectation matter, but nobody is forcing us to imitate them. There is no sanction whatsoever if we don't imitate them. Maybe we feel worse, but... <laughs> there is no external social sanction involved. And therefore, only my empirical expectation matter to my choice. Think of fashions or fads. These are typical cases in which we want to do as other people do for various reasons. Okay, There may be uh, pure informational reasons. I don't have enough information. The situation is very ambiguous and therefore... You know, I look at what other people do. And we do that a lot. When we look, we want to buy something. We go on Amazon and look at, you know, people who bought the same product we want to buy. And we read what they say. And again, we gather information there. And uh, it is only the empirical expectation that uh, really matter in that case. Nothing normative there. Okay. And there is another case in which empirical expectation sort of matter very importantly to choice and is the case of conventions. When you want to coordinate with other people, I'm thinking of David Lewis' idea of convention, which I embrace, okay? So a convention is basically, uh, you know, a collective, (coughs) sorry, a collective behavior in which 
you know, people have uh, empirical expectation about each other. These are mutual expectation. Whereas in a fashion, expectations are unilateral. So I want to be dressed like that actress, let's say. She doesn't care about me. <laughs> in the case of convention, you know, I want to drive on the right side of the road because I expect everybody else to write on the right side and they expect me to do that. And even if these expectations, you know, are not always present to my mind, certainly they play the role in the background. And my driving on the right side is, you know, uh, determined, uh, is basically caused, if you will, by the fact of having certain expectations. Okay, so I have a, a preference for driving on the right side of the road, conditional on having empirical expectation about other people doing the same. And I lump fashion, imitation, uh, you know, coordination, etc. So activities that are either unilateral or multilateral, in the sense that expectations are either unilateral or multilateral, I lump them uh, in a category that I call descriptive norms. Okay, this category is well known in social psychology. The only problem in social psychology or sociology even is uh, they talk of descriptive norm as normal behavior. And uh, that particular description is too coarse because normal behavior can include, uh, you know, a collective habit, custom, and, uh, you know, uh, a, a convention. Okay, or imitation, fashion, fads, whatever. And I think it is much better to distinguish between normal behavior that are independent, like customs, and normal behavior that are interdependent, like fashion, fads, or, um, you know, um, Conventions. These are what I call descriptive norm. So the, the idea of descriptive norm for me is determined by what sort of expectation play a role in choice behavior. The third uh, important collective behavior is social norms. And social norms share with descriptive norm the feature of being interdependent behavior. And again, I repeat, interdependent behavior means that I am motivated to act one way or another because I have certain expectations. In the case of social norms, we have both empirical and normative expectations. Now, what is a normative expectation is my belief that the relevant people, people who are relevant to my choice, which I call the reference network, believe I should behave in a particular way. So it's a second-order belief. Okay, It's not just my personal belief that I should do X, Y, Z, but it's my belief that other people believe that I should do X, Y, Z. And this is very important because uh, social norms are very often very different from my personal norms, okay? So I may have, uh, let's say, a personal rule against, uh, let's say, bribing. Suppose I, I am against bribing. I don't like bribing, 
okay? But suppose that I am in a situation in which I realize not only everybody is bribing, and these are real-life situations, I assure you, because I just finished a study in Nigeria about corruption. (laughs) (laughs) So I am in a situation in which everybody is bribing, it's well known, but also there is... Uh, in many cases, enormous support in bribing, okay? Uh, in, in certain situations, uh, people live a very uh, communitarian, I would say, life. So, you know, I am supposed, I come from a village, let's say I go in the capital and I have a position with the government and people in my village expect me to give them jobs uh, to take bribes and basically to, to to share the money with them and so on and so forth. So there is an expectation, which is a normative expectation, that says you ought to do certain things. So even if I am personally against bribing, if I am put in a situation in which not only everybody bribes, uh, so what I want to say is uh, there is a crucial difference between my personal normative beliefs and uh, not only other people's normative expectation, but indeed, uh, very often, even if my personal normative beliefs are different from uh, what the normative expectation of people around me are, typically, very often, people will obey the standing norm. Okay, this is very, very important to realize that very often the empirical and normative expectation may go against a person's normative beliefs, but in that case, very often that person will have uh, a motive. Typically, you know, this person may be sanctioned if he or she disobeys the norm, uh, will have a motive to obey the norm, even if it is against their personal normative beliefs. So I always tell people, do not confuse personal normative beliefs and normative expectation, because they may be different, and very often normative expectation and accompanied by empirical expectation, you observe people behaving in a way that you may not like, you know, will push people, will induce people uh, to behave in ways uh, that are even contrary to their principles. So this happens very often, unfortunately. And is that? Uh, can I ask a quick question about that? Does that? Um, is that? Do you think that's um, tied to just the 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 incentives to avoid um, sanction? Does it seem to? I mean, yeah. is 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 that the motivation? You don't want to, you don't want to yeah. be punished. Yes, absolutely. Social norms typically are accompanied by uh, sanction, positive or negative, but typically negative. And so, of course, uh, there is a trade-off between your conviction about, you know, the advisability of doing uh, or behaving in a particular way, doing certain things, versus uh, the almost certainty that uh, you will be negatively sanctioned if you do something that maybe your conscience tells you to do. And uh, often I see that when I study corruption, often people, you know, will uh, will follow the corrupt ways, will bribe, uh, etc., etc. And uh, the, the, another important element that uh, maybe people don't realize 
is uh, that even if uh, you are, let's say, let's keep the bribing example against bribing, you think uh, is, uh, you know, uh, not a good thing to do for various reasons. The fact that everybody does it and the fact that people expect you to do it uh, sort of normalizes it. Okay. There is a normalizing effect and uh, that in some sense, uh, um, you know, lowers your threshold. Okay. In, uh, in the sense that uh, you feel, maybe you feel, you still feel that bribing uh, is not good, but if everybody does it, you know, it's, it becomes almost a normal activity, becomes almost justified. This is uh, uh, something very important. When I do consulting, I always uh, tell people that one message not to send is a message that say, oh, a large percentage of people uh, bribe. A large percentage of people, you know, do violence against women because it's like giving people permission to do that. So there is a, you know, you have to pay attention also to the messages that you give. But going back to the social norm, so, you know, you may or may not agree with the content of the norm, okay? But if you completely disagree, of course, sanctions will be really necessary to make you behave in a, uh, you know, in, in a way according to the norm. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of other situations in which you may think that the norm, the content of the norm, what the norm stands for is good. Okay. And I do distinguish this case because in this case, you think that the people expecting you to do certain things is absolutely legitimate and right. And you have a duty to perform, you know, certain actions according to the norm. So it depends very much on what I call your sensitivity to the norm. You may be very sensitive to it or very little sensitive. And in each case, you know, in one case, if you have very little sensitivity to it, sanction will be necessary to make you follow the norm. In the other case, sanction will not be necessary because you will think that, you know, it's perfectly okay that people expect you to obey the norm. So there is a difference here in a person's sensitivity to the norm, which I always take into account. We can discuss then when I talk about trendsetter, what does it mean? So basically, uh, to summarize, I propose in the first chapter of the book a taxonomy of uh, collective behaviors and divide them into three big groups, customs, Of course, moral norms are another collective behavior because we share very often moral rules and is another type of behavior which is typically independent. It's very different from social norms that are uh, interdependent. So you have customs and maybe moral norms, share moral norms, type of collective behavior independent of expectation. And then you have those collective behavior that are dependent on expectation, where we have a conditional preference to perform the behavior because we have the expectation. When we have only empirical expectation, we have descriptive norms. When we have empirical and normative expectation, we have social norms. But remember, conditional preference are crucial. Right. So 
let's move then to the to the second sort of part uh, or this task of the book, which is the um, the measuring. Uh, now you were touching on this uh, just a moment ago, when we were talking about individual sensitivity to social norms. Um, I take it that um, in order to figure out. Uh, ways to intervene and to, to change uh, uh, collective behaviors. One has to um, first find out whether one's dealing with a custom or a moral norm or a social norm, or one has to figure out what one is dealing with. Um, and I take it that, um, as you were just saying, merely asking people <laughs> might, not, might not be the best way to do so. Can you tell us a little bit about the, about the measure, measurement uh, uh, aspect? Absolutely. Now, measurement is very important, not only in diagnosing what sort of collective behavior, what sort of practice, if you will, we are facing, but also in uh, trying to understand whether an intervention we have implemented has worked or not. So measure you know, is important at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. <laughs> and uh, I explain. First of all, the thing you measure is behavior. You know, you want to measure behavior. You want to measure people's beliefs about this behavior. So if we think uh, of, uh, like, let's say child marriage as uh, a collective behavior, you want to know what people believe about child marriage. Okay. What are the advantages, disadvantages, and consequences, and whatnot of child marriage? And very often you realize that uh, you know uh, some of these beliefs, at least not all of them, but some of these beliefs are false. And uh, then the question is how to change uh, people's beliefs. And this is very important. You know, often there are factual beliefs that are completely wrong. And uh, one great example that, uh, uh, you know, I realized when, when consulting for UNICEF was breastfeeding. So in many, many cultures, African cultures, but also in India, villages, the idea is uh, that early breastfeeding, so you have a newborn and you give them colostrum, basically, which is a first milk, is bad. You should never do that. And why you should never do that? Well, because uh, you know it will kill the child. And uh, it is exactly the opposite, uh, modern medicine tells us. But uh, you want, in some way, to convince people that, uh, you know, that belief is a false belief. But, you know, changing people's beliefs is not that easy. But supposing even that I change, you know, the young mother's belief about colostrum, would they dare to give the first meal to their newborn? And the answer is no. And the question is why? And the answer is because the mother-in-law is the decision maker in this context. And if the mother-in-law says you do not give first meal to the baby, you do not give it. End of story. Okay, so it's very interesting because very often lots of interventions on HIV, for example, on vaccinations have been focused on information. Let's give people the right information about why they should change behavior, why 
they, you know, should uh, use condoms or, you know, give colostrum to the baby or send daughters to school until they are 18 and so on and so forth. And uh, very often, even if we succeed uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes we can, sometimes we cannot uh, change in people's beliefs, the problem is very often these behaviors are interdependent. So what happens at this point? I have measured behavior. I measure beliefs. I realize some are correct and some are completely wrong. Then I measure expectations. I measure empirical expectation and I measure normative expectations. Now, before measuring expectation, I have to do something else very important, which is measuring networks. So norms are not just the property of an individual, but are the property of a network of people. And so it's very important, especially with intervention, sorry, with interventions in mind to be able to measure the network. For example, if we think of sanitation in India and we think of villages, uh, typically there are, uh, you know, different networks because there is a very sharp division by caste. Mm -hmm. And so the people that matter to me are typically people who belong to my caste and do not belong to another caste. So it's very important to realize um, who are the people who can influence that individual decision. Okay. So what I do now, I always measure the network before I measure the expectations because expectations are typically related to a specific reference network. Okay, and so I measure empirical expectation with uh, surveys. I measure normative expectation with incentivized surveys. So what do I do? I ask first uh, questions about uh, personal normative beliefs. So what do you think is right? Uh, what, what is the right behavior you know, to, to have? Is it uh, the right action? Is it the fair action? You know, you, it depends on the situation. How do I frame the question? And of course, there is always a demand effect because these people know that when we go and ask this question, we want them to behave in a particular way. <laughs> and, and there are lots of techniques that can be used to elicit average true beliefs, not individual, but average it's like uh, I tell you, uh, you know, you toss a coin and in your mind you decide, uh, you know, which uh, uh, face of the coin, you know, heads or tails is uh, the one, you know, uh, you want. And then uh, if uh, that particular face of the coin comes out, let's say heads come out, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what was in your mind, what you decided, you know, you say, that you practice open defecation and if the other side of the coin comes out, uh, you will tell us the truth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And of course, I don't know if you personally tell me the truth or not, but statistically I can infer what the truth is on average. Right. Okay? Uh, because on average, on a large number of tosses, the coin comes heads or tail 50% of the time. Okay. So I can measure basically, uh, you know, the average true belief of uh, the population. Now, when I ask about normative expectations, so people know 
that I've asked about their personal normative beliefs about a certain practice. And now I tell them, okay, you know I have asked people in your network about that. And uh, what do you think, you know, the majority responded? Or what do you think is the most common response? I mean, it depends on the situation, how um, sophisticated I can be in asking this question. You know, usually is a very simple question is what do you think most people who responded said? And I incentivize this answer. So I pay you for accuracy. Uh, in a lab experiment, I pay you $1 for being accurate, for telling me, you know, what most people said. Um, in, in the field, I may, uh, what we do actually is, uh, if you're accurate, I give you free time on the cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone everywhere. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, even in the most remote village, people have cell phones. And so we give them free time as, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, as a premium in some sense, uh, you know, for having uh, for having been accurate. So we incentivize accuracy because very often when you ask normative expectation without incentivizing accuracy, you have something we call projection. I think it's good and then I think everybody thinks it's good. Okay, but this makes people think. So suppose that I have at this point uh, a very accurate picture of behavior, of the beliefs that people have about this behavior, and about empirical and normative expectation. Then I want to know if they have conditional preference. I want to know if, uh, you know, these uh, expectations have some causal efficacy, you know, if uh, they matter to choice, if they motivate people to behave this way or another way. And to do that, you have to present people with hypothetical situations in which basically uh, they would have very different expectations and see whether they would behave in the same way or not. Now, there is a difficulty here. And the difficulty is if I present somebody with an hypothetical, let's say, counterfactual situation. So I say, Imagine if your mother-in-law uh, changed her mind and, uh, you know, supported early breastfeeding, breastfeeding, what would you do? And the typical response is laughing. They say, my mother-in-law would never change her mind. <laughs> okay. So uh, asking hypothetical or counterfactual question to people is not easy exactly because they may basically refuse the hypothetical, say it's impossible, <laughs> this will never happen, etc. So what I have developed are vignettes in which I uh, expose, uh, you know, different group of people to different situations. And let's say one group of women, let's say, is uh, exposed to a situation in which now most women in the village of a woman called uh, Dania, let's say, mm -hmm. and they can identify with Dania because it's a name uh, that they recognize, like uh, is part of their names, uh, is a village that they can imagine is very similar to their village. And so they say, you know, Dania is in a village where most uh, young mothers are now giving colostrum. So there are empirical expectations that colostrum is given. However, okay, uh, 
some women think that it should not be given. So there is a high empirical expectation and, uh, you know, few, uh, few women have normative expectation against it. So you have, uh, you know, a conflict between the empirical and the normative and you ask uh, the lady, what do you think Dania will do? Okay, and so we offer basically four type of vignettes, one with high empirical, high normative, low empirical, low normative, high empirical, low normative, high normative, low empirical. Mm -hmm. And we see how people respond and what they say that this fictional Dania character would do. And we learn a lot about conditional preferences. Wonderful. So in the... um there's a lot more uh, uh, architecture and um, uh, detail, of course, in the book than than what we're we're we're, uh, we're, we're talking about now. And I, I want to make sure, though, that um, before uh, our conversation comes to an end, that we talk about um, the final chapter of the book on trendsetters. Yes. And um, this might be a nice uh, segue because um, uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon, uh, the phenomenon of trendsetting. Yes. But also uh, the way that you connect it to what um, I'm to understand uh, from reading your book um, is a pretty effective intervention, which is um, soap operas on television. Yeah. <laughs> can we can we talk yes. a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. Yes. So let me uh, let me say very briefly. Uh, you know, in the other chapter of the book, I talk about change. And, um, you know, how I can change a bad norm, let's say, or how can I implement a, a new good social norm, etc. And, um, uh, you know, change means uh, basically changing people's expectations, right. okay, if we're dealing uh, with creating or abandoning social norms. The problem is uh, it's very difficult to do that. Think of abandoning a norm of, let's say, child marriage, if it is a norm, you know, suppose we measure it is a norm. Changing it exposes people to um, sanctions, various types of sanctions. And so changing is very costly individually. And what we have noticed is that very often there are a few people that spearhead change. That's the people I call trendsetters. So I got really interested in analyzing uh, uh, the nature of these trendsetters. Who are they? And uh, I must say that, uh, first of all, one should not think that if a person is a trendsetter in one situation, this person will be a trendsetter in another situation. Okay. And, uh, you know, these people will have a very low sensitivity for the norm they want, you know, other people to abandon, will have a certain propensity to risk, will have a certain autonomy, and very often what uh, I discovered, and there are lots of studies about that uh, on uh, um, Twitter, for example, uh, or Facebook even, uh, these transsetters are peripheral members of a community. They are not at the center. And this is easy to understand. Think of a well-established social norm and think of people who are at the center of the network typically are people who espouse the values of the community, who are the norm keepers, if you will. And so even if they disagree with the norm, there are lots of people around them that may 
you know, lose trust in them, that may not, uh, uh, you know, may want to punish them, and so on and so forth. So it's much easier if you want to abandon a norm to be at the periphery. Now, what I do in that chapter is I look at individual transceptors, I look at group of transceptors, and I explain how groups, uh, uh, you know, can do, basically. They can, in certain conditions, they can detach from the main group, and I give the example of the Amish, Mm -hmm. because they can be independent. In other cases, they cannot be independent. They need the rest of the group. They need the larger network. In that case, they will proselytize. And actually, I explain proselytism as the need of the transetting group, you know, to survive <laughs> and change things. So they need to bring people, you know, to their side. Now, the, the next question is, uh, all right, but how do you scale up all these, uh, all these things, all these activities? And we know, and I discuss this also in the tools chapter, we know that soap operas can act, can function as transceptors. And this is very interesting because people don't really study soap operas, <laughs> which are very, very much studied actually by economists now. Right. We know that they they change like uh, there have been fertility changes, yeah. you know, people who, you know, looking to, you know, following soap operas for years, the same soap opera. But uh, what I've looked at is uh, what is common to very successful soap operas that have induced significant change in behavior in many, many people. And they last a long time. Uh, People can identify with the characters. Typically, you want to identify with the characters. And we do that. Uh, Actually, I was watching Game of Thrones the other night. (laughs) (laughs) And we do identify with characters. Oh, that's for sure. (laughs) It's like me. (laughs) I want to be like him or her. And uh, and this is a psychological mechanism which is extremely useful in uh, behavioral change. Because people identify with the character. The character goes through several hurdles, um, you know, to obtain a new status in life. Like a girl doesn't, in India, for example, there have been soap operas with girls that, you know, want to be more free, don't want an arranged marriage, want to go to school until a certain age, and so on and so forth. And they come from very traditional families. So a young girl or a family looking at that soap opera can identify, say, oh, we are like them, etc. But it gives the girl a much better aspiration you know, it increases, if you will, your aspiration level. And the fact that the girl in the soap opera is successful after so many hurdles, you know, give people a sense that they can expect to be successful if they behave that way. So in a sense, it's changing people empirical and normative expectation. Okay. Uh, is very interesting because it requires a degree of identification which is very high to change your expectation. So you think this person is really like me. Her network is really like my network. And if things change there, I can expect things to change here. So very often, these soap operas that we know from economic analysis, for example, that do, uh, you know, induce significant changes, okay, in uh, behavior, 
in the uh, rate of divorce, for example, in Latin America and Brazil, um, employment, you know, rate of employment of uh, housewives that were not employed before, fertility rates, women not having children after a certain age, deciding not having children anymore, etc. There have been a lot of well-documented influences. So I think that a good soap opera, and BBC Media is working on that, even in the field of sanitation in India, actually, and I am collaborating with them, just uh, to create, uh, basically, uh, soap operas that... Uh, you know, are not so explicit because it has to be a good soap opera. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell people use a toilet, but you will see nice character using it. Right. So it's, you keep seeing that, okay? They do that and you want to be like them and so on and so forth. So uh, trendsetters can be individuals, can be group, but can also be, you know, uh, fictional characters, the characters of soap operas. And I think that not focusing on trendsetters and, uh, you know, collective change of behavior has been a big mistake of many of the campaigns that have been conducted over the years. Well, that's uh, fascinating. The, 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 the fictional character as trendsetter is... Um, uh, is is a real um, uh, interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, obviously, uh, there are uh, um, such uh, such characters. Um, Christina, you've been um, uh, very generous. Thank you for your time today. Um, uh, last question: um, uh, the book is the book is out. Uh, what will you do next? Well, um, at the moment, uh, I have several projects. Uh, as you might know, I still do uh, lab experiments, okay, on uh, um, expectation, how expectation do or do not motivate behavior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm still doing uh, basically uh, lab experiments uh, on, uh, um, on the one hand, uh, um, lying, let's call it lying, okay, on uh, sort of immoral behavior mm -hmm. and how immoral behavior can be influenced by uh, being in a group, not being in a group, in group, out group, etc., etc. I do that. I work also on punishment and compensation, which is related to social norm. Typically, we think that social norm is basically supported by punishment. But in my experiment, I also see that people tend to compensate uh, third parties at a cost to themselves, tend to compensate the victims of a norm violation. So this has not been very very well understood or studied. So I'm studying compensation of the victim as opposed to punishment of the perpetrators. Okay. Right. The two can go together, but compensation is much stronger, actually, than punishment. And, uh, of course, uh, I am working for the Gates Foundation on a huge three-year project on sanitation and how to create norms of latrine usage among people. So how norms can be created and made stable. And this is something that uh, is of tremendous interest to me, not only because it is a practical application of my theory, but because it hopefully useful to, you know, millions of people. Well, Christina, thank you once again for your time today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, 
And thank you, listener, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, uh, the book is titled Norms in the Wild. And again, the author is Christina Bicchieri. The publisher is Oxford University Press. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. And bye for now. 